Good morning, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the fifth day, March 2022. Now, we have been talking about various diseases of the digestive tract that were linked directly to obesity. And we talked about some carcinomas. In fact, I also gave you, I think, a pretty um, healthy discussion of the primary sclerosing cholangitis, its etiology, as well as the fibropolycystic liver diseases. We talked about intrahepatic bile ducts and how that can be uh, associated with all these kinds of tissue abnormalities that ultimately lead to uh, a decrease in the facility of digestion, particularly of lipids, <laughs> so that then lipid Pro, lipids and lipoprotein circulation becomes dysregulated. And that dyslipidemia allows for lipid deposits in organs and in other tissue areas that are otherwise not a good storage place for fatty acids or cholesterol, those being the two prominent kinds of lipids we talk about. And this can then lead to some very severe diseases especially within the biliary tree, we talked about the cholangial carcinomas, right? So I realized that we need to talk about the liver and the pancreas and the entire digestive tract by looking subcellularly, because a lot of the things I went really uh, rapidly over such as the production of bile acids and lipid metabolism. Of course, that's all intracellular, right? And I'm all about intracellular because I'm a biochemist, right? So I want to today get into that uh, deeper discussion. And in order to do that, we have to go into the cell. We have to look at, for example, a liver, liver parenchymal cell. Could be one, could be a pancreatic a ductal carcinoma, uh, carcinoma. It could be, um, oh, a cell within the villus of the small intestine or the, you know, in the duodenum uh, or the jejunum. So it, all of these cells, in fact, almost all cells in the body have a group of organelles which have specific functions. And we know these. The nucleus, of course contains the DNA that is the genome of the organism. And with, besides that, it's also the site of DNA recombination, repair, and replication, right? Getting ready for cell division or, for exa or even in some uh, cells types, gametogenesis. Uh, we also know that the nucleus has transcription and that nascent messenger RNAs are capped and sent out of the nucleus translocating the cytoplasm and there with polyribosomes, which are produced from ribosomal RNA, transfer RNA, um, ribosomal proteins, and of course, the messenger RNA that becomes translated into polypeptide with the help of the, the, all that machinery, the transfer RNA, the ribosomal RNA, the ribosomal proteins to synthesize polypeptides or you know, frankly, just proteins many of those proteins being enzymes or structural components of the cell. And then those enzymes uh, will carry out the catalysis that we talk about in pathway biochemistry. Such things as glycolysis, the oxidative pentose phosphate chunk, 
the um, oh, the carnitine one, carnitine two palmitoyl transferases carrying fatty acid from the cytoplasm, first as acyl-CoAs and into the inner mitochondria where beta oxidation can occur with all the enzymes associated with beta oxidation, ultimately leading to ketone body production, right? Now, all those enzymes that are found in just that simple, very, very minute um, window of metabolism, all those enzymes had to be uh, functioning through multiple organelles. First of all, from the nucleus going from DNA to RNA, and then in the cytoplasm, which of course is, is free of organelles, but it's where the organelles reside, you have polyribosomal uh, translation of polypeptide, but you also of course have ribosomes in the endoplasmic reticulum. And we talked about the endoplasmic reticulum, the fact that it is a source and site of glycoprotein synthesis and some glycoproteins we think a lot about in biomedicine and in health and patho pathology because they can include the glycoproteins known as immunoglobulins or cytokines. And these would be part then of the immune machinery, right? So just to give you an idea of what's synthesized in the ER. Now, of course, the interplasm reticulum is also the site of not just glycoprotein synthesis, but complex lipid synthesis. So moving from the ER, and we already, and of course, the mitochondria is where we are carrying our electron transport chain in the intermitochondrial membrane, doing the the, the ultimate oxidation of reduced nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide and flavin adenine dinucleotide. Um, and then after the, after the release of the electrons and pumping protons back through the intermitochondrial membrane, using the five complexes of the ETC, we synthesize ATP, and then ATP is translocated out of the mitochondria. And that, as you know, the hydrolysis of the gamma phosphoryl of ATP is used bioenergetically to build up organic compounds like proteins, like lipids, complex lipids, and of course, DNA and RNA. So that's a very, you know, really 200 mile an hour run through some of the organelles. But today I want to focus more on an organelle that doesn't get as much attention as it should, but lipid biochemists, we spend a fair amount of time on it, and that is called the peroxisome. Now, in the older literature, when you were using light microscopy to examine what's subcellular, these were just called microbodies, okay? And they make up a pretty small volume of, let's say, a total parenchymal cell volume, only like 1%, maybe 2%. But they're distributed fairly uniformly throughout a, the liver lobule and throughout all the hepatocytes that make up that uh, cellular mass. They tend to occur in clusters, that is the peroxisomes. And indeed, that's how they were first studied. And that's why they were called microbodies, because they were uh, basically fused together because of the membrane association. So... Cell types in which peroxisomes are less abundant do exist. For example, fibroblasts have very few peroxisomes. Now, this is interesting because, as we know, 
fibroblasts are often cells that are used to replace other cells in, say, organs where the biosynthesis of those cells, like, say, hepatocytes via division, cell division, cannot keep up with the amount of cellular degradation due to disease. So this would be an association with degeneration or such things as, um, you know, hepatitis or any kind of disease that's in that particular organ in the liver, that's where we're at right now, where you get tissue degeneration, cirrhosis, of course, a key uh, issue in biomedicine. And of course, there's uh, cholangiostatic diseases that we've been talking about the last two lectures will um, reprise the destruction of massive amounts of liver tissue. And what is replaced by are fibrocytes. Now, if fibrocytes are very deficient in peroxisomes, that means a fibrocyte can't function as a normal cell in the liver because it doesn't have the correct subcellular compartments to carry out whatever peroxisomes do. And that's what we're going to get into now. So you understand now different cell types, if they do have this re relatively rare um, deficiency of not having peroxisomes, that means that those fibrocytes are not functional for what is necessary for hepatocyte. If you don't have that, then the cells in the liver are not acting as liver functional, uh, organized cellular masses. So that means that you're losing that or you're losing the efficiency of the liver to carry out its business, right? So that's why people are interested in where you find peroxisomes and where you don't find them, right? So you also have peroxisomes uh, that are in steroid secreting cells, for example, in the adrenal cortex. You have peroxisomes uh, in abundance in sebaceous glands, and those also tend to synthesize. So adrenal cortex synthesizes steroids, those are lipids. Sebaceous glands in the skin, what do they do? They produce a lot of ether lipids and waxes. That's the outer integument of the body, right? that maintains body temperature and also uh, the loss of water via transpiration in plants and perspiration in animals. Other cells that have an abundance of peroxisomes are in the brain. So glia, both microglia and the glial cells that are linked to myelin biosynthesis in the um, central nervous system have, and of course, myelin is a schwingomyelin, it's a lipid, right? So you're going to have a great deal of peroxisomes. So you see where this is leading. Peroxisomes have a great deal to do with lipid biosynthesis, very specific types of lipids. And these uh, tend to play roles not just in membrane integrity and membrane activity, but also as signaling molecules and as cofactors in association with either activation or deactivation of enzymatic activity and turnover, translocation of proteins in and out of those organelles or out of the cell, and furthermore, in, involved in controlling cell fate via the control over signal transduction cascades. So obviously these lipids are extremely important and they are indeed essential to cellular activity. So I just told you that if you have fibrocytes and they're deficient in peroxisomes, that means none of what I just described would be going on in the cell. 
Obviously, that wouldn't be a good thing for hepatocytes, which are have a high uh, ordination of biological activity, which must be regularly, never, never at a nadir, 24-7 until the organism dies, right? So that means that anytime you get high levels of fibrosis, which is what occurs, for example, with um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, um, this, those kinds of um, uh, prodromal diseases leading towards things like hepatocellular carcinoma will lead to a great inefficiency of the liver to carry out its normal biological function. And I just explained why, because the uh, proxosomes do a lot of lipid metabolism. Now, a couple more things. Proxosomes don't contain DNA. And you might think, well, and I just say the nucleus DNA. Well, of course, that's the genome of that cell is where the DNA is found in the nucleus in eukaryotic organisms. However, remember the DNA is also found in the mitochondrion. And the DNA in the mitochondrion is structured much differently. It's not linked in, in chromosomes. You don't have chromatin. You don't have histones associated with it. You have basically very small circular mitochondrial subgenomes. Okay. And yet the genes that are in that DNA in the mitochondria are really essential for some of the functions of the mitochondria. So, you know, that's significant. Now I'm telling you peroxisomes, which like mitochondria, go through autonomous divisions. Now, what do I mean by that? They don't follow the cell cycle. So the mitochondria can reproduce by fission, and so can the peroxisome. That means that the peroxisomes in the mitochondria are functioning semi-autonomously in the cell, say a hepatocyte or say a glial cell. Now, what would be the, um, let's see, teleological purpose of something like that? Why would there be a teleology for having uh, uh, self-autonomous replication of organelles? Well, it would have to do with changes in the fluctuation of what the cell is doing. And what are the major changes the cell does? Besides altering gene expression, which of course is all cells have to be able to pivot to change gene expression because of stress, including nutrient stress. When, I tell, when I'm telling you two particular organelles will replicate autonomously uh, in the cell, in other words, via fission, making more and more mitochondria, for example, or older mitochondria going through mitophagy, same with peroxisomes. You have peroxisomal genesis via uh, fission. That means simply cell division, or excuse me, not cell division, organellar di division, right? That's what that means, fission. But also you have peroxisomal phagy, where you have peroxisomes, once they reach a certain uh, chronological age in the cell, they turn over and they become self-consuming. This is what happens to mitochondria and peroxisomes when there's too many. It's part of the autophagy process, right? These organellar phagic activities. So that means to a biochemist that the functions of the mitochondria and the peroxisome are very likely coordinated because their fission are coordinated and the number of them in the cell are associated with things like oxidative metabolism. Oxidative metabolism, of course, includes a lot of um, 
defense mechanisms, such as the production of reactive oxygen, but what else oxidative metabolism is involved in is bioenergetics. And when you talk about bioenergetics, you're talking in two directions, the biosynthesis of ATP and the utilization of ATP. So that means that obviously the mitochondrion and the peroxisome are involved in bioenergetics. And so if that's the component to think the key in on, then the lipid metabolism in the peroxisome obviously has a role in bioenergetics. Now that's not the only thing, right? It's also involved in membrane turnover in a very significant way, and particularly for the omega-3, omega-6, very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acid turnover in plasma membrane lipids. Okay, because very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acid, because of all that double bond, will go through auto-oxidation. Remember, we discussed this in the past. I know you don't probably like to hear me saying remember, but trying to get you to listen to my other lectures because they will tell you all of the background you need to know to follow me today and indeed tomorrow. Though, so these very long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids of an omega-3 or omega-6 class, or it doesn't really matter, but those are the more common ones, in terms of the positional isomeric forms you find in plasma membranes, particularly in, in very bioactive systems like in the liver and in the central nervous system and also in immune cells, I should point out, such things as lymphocytes and leukocytes and all those subdivisions. What it's telling you is that those fatty acids, all those double bonds, because they can auto-oxidize or peroxidize, you can get hydroxy and hydroxyl radicals generated from those fatty acids. And those would tend to destroy the membrane. And as goes the membrane, goes the cell on the way, not just to a programmed cell death, which would be the best of all um, final end to a cell that's going down to a death um, uh, conclusion. But often when you get a lot of peroxidation of fatty acids in the membrane, you do not go through apoptosis, which, was, which normally does not induce an immune response locally because it's self-consuming, uh, self-limiting and self-consuming, I would say. But you get things like ferritosis um, or necrotosis, and that will lead to the contents of the cell being spilled out because the plasma membrane has been compromised. And when that happens, you get a robust immune response, and then you can generate chronic inflammatory problems like the ones we're talking about with uh, hepatic and cholangial and pancreatic um, inflammations, disorders, leading to often, not always, but often enough that causes uh, uh, adenocarcinomas. So that's why peroxisomes are important. If I haven't already made you fully believe it, let me continue. So peroxisomes don't have DNA, unlike mitochondria. So that's interesting. But another very interesting thing is that peroxisomes don't typically have glycoproteins. Although some glycoprotein biosynthesis and trafficking through the peroxisome occurs so that means that glycoproteins are not necessary for peroxisomal function. That tells me, knowing a little bit about the evolution of biochemical pathways, that glycoprotein biosynthesis is usually used for 
in prokaryotes, cell wall metabolism. But of course, in eukaryotes, like animals, you don't have a cell wall, right? You just have the plasma membrane. And yet what happens to a lot of glycoproteins is they get secreted or indeed embedded in that plasma membrane or in other endomembranous compartments. So it tells me that the peroxisome not um, obtaining during normal metabolic processing high levels of glycoproteins, either within the lumen of the peroxisome or in its own membrane, tells me that its function is not at the level of regulating trafficking of secreted glycoproteins, unlike the ER and Golgi apparatus, the Golgi apparatus being another entire organellar system, which we're not emphasizing today, but which is also extremely important for lipid metabolism, I will point out the ER, the Golgi and the peroxisome and the mitochondrion all have major roles in complex lipid biosynthesis and turnover, and therefore signaling bioenergetics and everything a cell is supposed to do as a card-carrying eukaryotic cell. So without those glycoproteins, going back to the evolutionary concept, it tells me that peroxisomes probably came later in the evolutionary cycle of what happens to subcellular organization. And it seems like peroxisomes are more necessary for higher eukaryotes. You find them in plant tissue and you certainly find them in animal tissue. And in the animal tissue, they probably play a much more significant role than they do in plants. In plants, some peroxisomes become glyoxisomes and they are involved in redox and oxygen metabolism because they're involved in photorespiration. And I talked about photorespiration a couple of times. I'm not going to do it today because I'm not talking about plants, but I promise I will do some more plant biochemistry for you. Because, you know, that's my origin. Now, I'm not a plant, but I got my, my doctorate degree studying plant biochemistry. So I know a little bit about plants, although I haven't done any research with them in, in, in a while. But peroxisomes are also very important in plants. There's a lot of peroxisomal activity, but they do totally different. Their, their function isn't, isn't absolutely different, but what they're doing in plants is not the same as what animal systems use peroxisomes for. And that's what we're really trying to get into today. Because we're, again, we're talking about diseases associated with obesity and the major disease that we're locking into is diabetes, right? Let's not forget that's the major uh, um, arc of our discussion. These last, what? Now, this is, I think, number eight on these lectures of diabetes. So we're getting deep into the interior of these diseases. And that's why when you hear someone talk about, well, he has diabetes and people say, well, does he need insulin? That's about as far as most lay people know. They know that there's a type one diabetes where insulin's required. And you know that's because there's a direct autoimmune destruction of the beta cells, which are these pancreatic islet cells, which secrete insulin. And you know that insulin is necessary for glucose control. We call it glucose homeostasis. That means glucose uptake in certain um, cellular masses. And to the two major organs in the body that have the most significant, but not, not the only um, uh, uh, insulin-dependent glucose uptake are, of course, the adipose, where you ultimately take the glucose and use it to synthesize storage depot fat in the form of triacylglycerol. But 
Insulin-dependent glucose uptake is also absolutely a major component of skeletal muscle activity, right? So when you lose that support in type 1 diabetes, of course, you lose the control of insulin-dependent glucose uptake. And that's why you have high levels of glucosemia, which means high levels of circulating glucose. And that, yes, indeed, is how the disease was first named. Although I'm hoping to convince you after all the lectures you've ever heard from me that diabetes is not so much a disease of carbohydrate as it is a disease of lipid metabolism. And so you probably, some of you, I think I've convinced over the years, particularly those people that were in my class. And if you didn't know that and you tried to take one of my exams and you, because you didn't know it, you didn't answer the exam question correctly and you failed the class, or you got a low grade, obviously you woke up pretty quickly and realized that, yeah, I probably kind of had to buy into that. That's not the only reason uh, professors aren't uh, dictators, but hopefully the professor, when he, when he or she is trying to lead you into an area and say, uh, here's kind of a misnomer in the popular culture about a disease, you should probably pay attention to that person unless they're absolutely mad. And you know, sometimes you can have a mad professor, but normally isn't it that you, you have like goofy or crazy professors. Now, I wasn't mad. I'm certainly not goofy and I'm not crazy. So I didn't fit any of those um, on the shelf brackets. So you can take it from me as a person who studied lipids all of his life. Well, probably not when I was a really little kid, but maybe indirectly, but certainly since graduate school and uh, professional scientific life, I can tell you that the diabetic diseases uh, because they're linked to obesity should tell you something, but yes, they are really dyslipidemic diseases. And yeah, glucose uptake because of this whole insulin story does play a major role. Now that was a long aside, but I want to reemphasize things like that because I realize my audience is out there in the world. And some of you are listening for the first time. Some of you maybe have uh, some background in biology or biochemistry. Um, some of you may be medical doctors, or, or other kinds of clinicians. Some of you may be lay people that want to know more about how biochemistry plays a role in their life, which of course it is the absolute essentiality of life to know something about biochemistry. I would say to every person uh, with, a de with a decent uh, memory and some level of cognition, you should know something about biochemistry. So what this leads to again is why we talk about things like subcellular components, like the peroxisome. I'm explaining to you now why you need to know this detail. <clears throat> We're going to do a lot of detail about this because without that, you can't very well say you know something, even if you say a clinician, you know, a good MD there working in a clinic or an MD working in a hospital. You say, yes, I know all about diabetes and you don't know what the peroxisome does. And I don't mean simply that, oh, gee, it's involved in the removal of peroxy fatty acids or something to do with the plasma membrane. That's not enough. You need to know a whole lot more about the peroxisome with the level of biochemistry and physiology. And that's what we're doing right now. So I'm just going to use that as a... Um, jump off point, or maybe as a ridge where I can move to the next higher place on the mountain and start talking about the anabolic function of the peroxisomes. We have a couple of minutes so we can at least get started. So 
major function of peroxisomes just in terms of uh, biosynthesis, and now we're talking lipids because lipids is key in authentic biochemistry, um, is a lipid known as plasmalogen. Now, plasmalogens, you may not have heard of, but they constitute somewhere between, depending on the cell, 5 to 20% of all of the phospholipids in mammalian cell membranes. You find plasmalogens primarily in the membrane. And what plasmalogens have is a 1-2 unsaturated long-chain alcohol in what's known as a vinyl ether linkage to a glycerol backbone of a phospholipid. Okay, so again, I know that many of you have some chemistry background, but I'm going to finish today by explaining to you the difference between ether and an ester. An ester is a group where one of the oxygen atoms involved in this group of atoms is doubly bonded to a carbon atom, which is itself singly bonded to another oxygen atom, which again is singly bonded to another carbon atom. Now that's in opposition to an ether group where an oxygen atom is singly bonded to two different carbon atoms. And those carbon atoms are in a group known as an alkyl group. So ester and ethers are functional classes of organic compounds and they classify them in a way that shows that esters can be prepared by a process called esterification in the laboratory. And the main difference between an ether and an ester is in their structure. So an ester group involves those two oxygen atoms and two carbon atoms to complete that characteristic ester structure, such as the oxygen ester we talk about